Hey, Mary, today's episode, we interview the author of the book, Pure. Her name is Linda K. Klein, and she's a flippin' badass. She is a badass. Oh, my God. Yeah. Tons of parallels to Mormonism. She talks about the purity culture within evangelicalism. Is that a word? I think so. Okay, good. And her recovery from that and what she's doing now to help others. So check it out. Yeah. Coming right at you. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-evangelical gay girl who's got her shit all figured out. What the hell? What about me? (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd switch it up. Well, uh, all right. (laughs) Because, Shelly, we have a special guest today. Mm, We do, and I'm pumped. And it just seemed fair that I get a little evangelical love. Is that a thing? <laughs> Does anybody want that? I mean, it's <laughs> it's not the kind of love I want, um, but okay. <laughs> are you going to introduce yourself? Oh yeah, I'm Mary. I'm Shelly. Shelly, we are not leaving you out of today's conversation, even though Thank you. it is with author Linda K. Klein. She wrote a book called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. I can't wait to talk to her because that shit sounds familiar. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between these, uh, what do they call them, high-demand religions? Yeah, this isn't Mormonism. This is a different kind of cult. Yeah, I mean, some people wouldn't consider it a cult. I don't know. You're right. High-demand religion, that's the new term. You know what? I think we are watering it down because basically they guilt and shame you within an inch of your life, just like Mormonism and other religions. I mean, maybe they're all cults, for God's sake. I don't know. I think so. Yeah, so Mary, you read the book, right? I sure did. Actually, I listened to it on Audible. <laughs> In fact, we have a clip. You know how, can I Can I just brag about how clever I am? Yeah. Uh, Yes, of course. (laughs) I wanted to feature an audio excerpt before we get into the interview. So Ah. I went on Amazon to listen to a sample of the book. Oh, And what you can do is you can go into the source code Mm -hmm. and find the MP3 embedded within the code on Amazon's page. Wow. Or maybe I did it within Audible. Anyway, whatever. I was able to download an MP3 of the clip that she provides as her excerpt. Does that make sense? So it was like sneaky. You're like giving it to the man. I'm not paying for that. Well, it's only five minutes. Oh. <laughs> I did pay for the entire book on Audible. Okay. This All five right. minute excerpt, I just grabbed like a minute of it to feature in our show. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should go ahead and uh, do that. Yep. Do it. Okay. We're going to play the clip. Here we go. In junior high, the term stumbling block annoyed me. The implication that my friends and I were nothing more than things over which men and boys could trip was not lost on me. When half the guys stripped their shirts off and began a water fight at the youth group car wash outside of the Piggly Wiggly, I thought it was unfair that it was me who got reprimanded for having my shirt sprayed by their hoses. But even as I bristled, I obeyed. I went home and changed into a dry shirt, longer shorts, longer skirts, higher back dresses, and higher necked tops. By the time I was in high school and had my first boyfriend, I had been talked to about how I dressed and acted so many times that my annoyance was beginning to turn into anxiety. It began to feel like it didn't matter what I did or what I wore. It was me that was bad. So we want to welcome Linda K. Klein, author of Pure, to our show. Welcome, Linda. So happy to have you. Hello. So we want to get into the content of the clip we just played in, in just a minute. But first, I want to back up just a bit. Because we compared notes off mic, and I was raised evangelical as well, but we had really different upbringings. My biggest struggle was coming out, because I was realizing that Mm. later in high school. But the whole purity thing wasn't as big an issue. But I want to just define evangelical. A lot of our listeners are ex-Mormon and other types, but how do you define evangelical? Sure. So you heard me take a big sigh. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to wrap your brain around it. Well, it's a tough question. And I think one of the reasons it's so tough is because there are actually a lot of different evangelicalisms. And I mean that in many different ways. First of all, there's a a spiritual evangelicalism, a religious evangelicalism, a political evangelicalism, a cultural evangelicalism. And I think all of those things are distinct from one another and have different— Uh, definitions and different sort of boxes to check to belong in each one. And then what's interesting, though, is that people use the word evangelicalism or more 
accurately if you're part of the evangelical community. You're just going to use the word Christian, by which you mean the real Christians, not all those fake Christians out there, you know. (laughs) But you use it to refer to all of those evangelicalisms, which is how you end up in a situation where somebody not voting for the right person can feel like, oh, you voted for them? Are you really a Christian? Are you Mm. you really going to go to heaven you voted for them. Yeah. So that's how these things get so blurry. And then within all of these different evangelicalisms, you have a lot of racial segregation. So the evangelical black churches are quite different from the evangelical white churches, for example. Really? I'm going to try to give you the best big definition and then kind of break it down from a religious point of view, um, because I think that will be helpful for, for folks. But the best biggest definition, as far as I'm concerned, is evangelicalism is a subculture. So much like any other subculture, uh, it's defined by who you hang out with, (laughs) what language you use, you know, what celebrities you follow, what music you listen to. Um, So it's similar in evangelicalism. You can actually, you know, fit into all of the religious belief system requirements And yet I would say not be an evangelical because maybe you actually, you know, have a totally different subculture that is your subculture. You just happen to have had a born-again experience or something like that. So that's the big definition, subculture. But religiously, you know, the things that you're really dependent upon uh, is having that born-again experience, dying to the old self and being born again as a new person who is a Christ follower. And number two, telling others about that born-again experience and about how they too can have one. In other words, evangelizing, evangelical, so that others can go to heaven, since that's the um, gateway to heaven according to the evangelical belief system. So that would include a bunch of denominations that actually support that, like, for example, Southern Baptist is a really big one. But then it would include lots of other people who consider themselves non-denominational. So um, a lot of evangelical churches are going to say, you know, we don't have a denomination. Maybe the name of the church is the name of the city followed by the word church, right? Or the name of the neighborhood followed by the word church. Or it's like some really beautiful word like transformation or journey (laughs) or, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that that feels very non-religious. And they'll say, we're non-denominational. We have no connection to any denominational interpretation. Therefore, we're just taking the word of Jesus and we are interpreting it uh, without error. Of course. <laughs> and as though time did not exist between Jesus and where we are today, and this is the sort of pure, unadulterated Christianity, that that sort of non-denominational category would be kind of the biggest way that we see evangelicalism sort of label itself. So a lot of evangelicals don't actually use the terminology, don't necessarily even know they're evangelical. So it's it's a tricky one to answer, right? But when I talk about evangelicalism in my book, I'm talking primarily about the white evangelical Christian subculture. Okay. Uh, You know, that's 20% of the country. So if you consider yourself to be born again, does that automatically make you evangelical? Well, so that's where it gets tricky. So if you look at the Pew uh, survey, they will actually categorize someone as evangelical if they either say they are evangelical or say they are born again. Okay. But as I said, you know, if you're somebody who hangs out in the evangelical subculture and that is your life and that is your identity and you haven't had a born-again experience, which you're probably lying about um, and telling people you have even if you haven't, <laughs> you know, you can be more evangelical, in my opinion, mm-hmm. than somebody who has had a born-again experience but who, you know, subsequently has no connection to the evangelical world. I would say that's why for me that subculture definition is so important. Mm-hmm. And real quick, I want to give a shout out to all the EMTs in New York City yeah. right now. They're doing a bang up job. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Um, Here we are, right? <laughs> every time somebody uh, lays on their horn in DC, I'm like, really? Are we in New York? Come on, stop. <laughs> yeah, that journey out of the birth canal the second time around is rough. Let me tell you, yeah. Shelley. There's no born again language in Mormonism, is there? Yes and no. You don't ever say we're born again, but you talk about being born again in the Spirit. But no one says, I'm born again. That's saved for the wacky evangelicals, according to Mormons, right? (laughs) Um, But when you're baptized, you're supposed to be born again of the Spirit. 
I mean, if the evangelicals would accept them, Mormons are just as evangelical. Mormons think that they're the ones that are doing Jesus just how it was in the beginning and interpreting the scriptures correctly and, you know, serving missions and and bringing people into the truth. Uh, The only problem is, is that typical Christians view Mormons as not Christians. And so that's the reason there's this big divide. But being born again is definitely a thing, but you don't say it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because you know what? Evangelicals didn't feel the need to write another book, you know? <laughs> the Bible is good enough for them. They only <laughs> felt the need to have entire bookstores for all of their many supplementary books that are somehow— Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. An entire yep. corporation of uh, bookstores that you can find in communities around the country. That's true. Uh-huh. I've never seen a Christian bookstore somewhere else in the world, but I'm quite certain that they exist. Oh, yeah. And um, Mormons have a lot of bookstores, too. Right. They right. have Deseret Book, and that's where, like, you can trust that if you go in there and get a book, that that's safe. It's Mormony. I had to tell my dad after I left the church, I'm like, Dad, do not buy my kids anything from Deseret Book ever again, Mm. because it's all Mormon-based. It's all very the guilt of you need to be Mormon, stay Mormon, we have the truth. I'm sure you've experienced that as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because my book, if you go to Barnes & Noble, interestingly to me, the section of the bookstore that it's in is Christian Living. (laughs) I'm just like, who's going to Christian Living and being like, yes, this is what I wanted. That's very specific. (laughs) I wonder if they order it without knowing what it is. They're like, oh, pure. I want to learn how to be more pure. And then they get the book and they're like, no, no, they they had read it. And apparently the um, woman who is in charge of Christian living at Barnes and Noble loved it. So for me, I think what it made me think was, oh gosh, like is my definition of a Christian section of a store really heavily influenced by my upbringing of going into these Christian bookstores where it would be only one Mm. version of Christianity. Gotcha. Mm. You know, at Barnes and Noble, we're talking about about all these different groups who are like, no, I'm the one or we're the ones who are interpreting <laughs> mm-hmm. it. <laughs> right. And here they all are, right, together yeah. in this section of the bookstore. Yep. So uh, let's dive into the book. For those who may not be familiar with the idea of the purity movement or culture, would you describe that for us? Sure. Uh, The purity movement is really something that came up in the early 1990s, and it was distinct and new, but it was built upon what I would say was an established purity culture, though we didn't actually use that language until quite recently. But, you know, we, we have obviously global challenges around gender and sexual control that were a strong foundation, and we have theological ideas about sexuality and sexuality being part of the body and being, you know, not not pure, not spiritual. So all of those were sort of the foundation upon which in the early 1990s, the white evangelical church introduced the purity movement. And the purity movement very quickly turned into an industry. So that's when we start to see these parachurch organizations like True Love Waits and the Silver Ring thing start to come up with all of these products at the same time. We see purity rings, right? We see purity pledges. We see purity-themed books, purity-themed movies, Um, Christian pop stars are pulled aside and told, can you write some purity-themed songs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have this huge sort of industry that is built, including a lot of curricula. And meanwhile, in advance of this purity movement, uh, many of the purity purveyors had already started to lobby the government for more money for abstinence only before marriage messaging. And after some uh, lawsuits, some of that money, at least, it's hard to track exactly where the money went, um, got to these evangelical purity purveyors. So now you have the purity movement that's utterly saturating the lives of this 20% of the population that is growing growing up in white evangelical Christian churches with this message. You can't turn around without seeing something purity. Um, But you also have a more diluted version of it that is intentionally being brought into public schools, sometimes the same curricula, uh, just with some augmentations. Wow. That's being brought into international aid for things like HIV that is, you know, paid for by government funding, Um, all of these, you know, grassroots organizations, so on and so forth. So it really was an intentional movement to really say, we are going to change this 
culture and really create a purity culture. So once we started to understand that that was happening, that's when this term purity culture arose. Though, you know, you could certainly argue that we have been living in a purity culture for a much longer period of time. And I don't know if you all remember this, but the purity movement was remarkably successful. You know, it started, as I said, in the early 90s, and it really peaked in the early 2000s until the money actually was curbed from the government um, in 2008. But, you know, in the 2000s, we had like MTV stars, you know, wearing purity rings, talking about purity. We had the Jonas Brothers. We had Miley Cyrus, you know, of all things. I know, of all people, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So it really had become a very significant part of our culture. Yeah. And what a great use of taxpayer dollars to go directly (laughs) towards shaming adolescents. I think that's fantastic. That's right. Yeah, good job. Because that is the other side of the coin of purity is shame, I believe. And I want to get into that. So right off the bat in your book, and this relates also to the audio clip we played, you talk about how your developing body as an adolescent made you feel ashamed and like you were a bad person. Tell us about that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, One of the things I talk about a lot is, um, and I talk about this in the book as well, is, is how complicated this has been for my mom. I, I'm departing from your question because it's making me think of this, but I promise to circle back. But no worries. Because my my mom, you know, was in this culture as well. And I think it was really hard for her to see that it was problematic. So my mom called me this morning and she said, I was just in church and I was really struck by this memory, which is something I write about in the book, this memory of you being cast in plays as the Jezebel. Mm. And I had this memory of you coming up to me and saying, why am I always cast as the Jezebel? I mean, I want to be an actress. I like playing characters. I'm not complaining, but why am I always cast this way? And she said, gosh, you know, in retrospect, I I don't know how I didn't see what they were doing to you. Wow. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is I wasn't just cast as the Jezebel in church plays, all the church plays. I was also cast as the Jezebel in school plays and different things like that. And I said, you know, I think as a young person, I did. I felt very self-conscious. I was like, why am I being seen in this way, particularly when I'm trying so, 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 so hard to be pure? Mm-hmm. And my mom and I started to kind of deconstruct it. And she was like, well, I think part of it is that you were really curvy. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And she said, and I think part of it is is that you were really friendly. And I said, oh my gosh, I think you're right. I think my outgoingness, I think my friendliness, I think the fact that I made jokes, you know, kind of put me in this category where there was this idea that if you weren't curvy and you didn't talk to people and you were shy, then you were also probably sexually pure. Like you weren't Mm -hmm. causing any problems. You were kind of in the background where we want you to be, not a threat to any of the men, not a threat to any of the wives. But if you were standing out, you know, if you were joking, if you had a curvy body, if you were noticed, you know, if you were noticed, it was seen through this sexualizing lens. Yeah. And I mean, this is a really powerful conversation. You know, you have read the book, so you know this this struggle between my mom and me yeah. has been a multi-decade struggle. Yeah, you put writing the book on hold for a while because of her. Yeah, because it was so threatening to my community, which was so scary to a lot of people, and I think particularly to her you know, God bless her to allow me to like, you know, here I am talking about her all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I I talk about my dad all the time too. And I talk about my mom too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think she really is starting to see things differently, you know, as she thinks back and, and has these memories about these things that I think at the time feel really innocuous. And I think that's what's so tricky about this. You know, there are examples of situations where you can say, okay, that is clearly shaming, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is clearly a problem and it's easily identifiable. But the vast majority are just these small things that add up over time to tell you that it doesn't matter what you do. There is something about you that is bad, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is the definition of shame. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. You are impure. Yeah. 
Wow. Just because of who you are. That makes me think of, in Mormonism, and I think it was around in the 90s as well, Mormonism didn't necessarily have a, a push for purity. It just has always been there. But all these videos started coming out. For example, there was one called Modest is Hottest. <laughs> that terminology is used in evangelicalism, too. Oh, God. They, they must have stolen it. Someone stole it from someone. Okay. Right, 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 right. I was first. No, I was first. I was first to shame the girls. Um, <laughs> Mormon boys would sing this song called Modest is Hottest, and it's all about how you're super hot to me if you cover your shoulders and if you maintain mm-hmm. being pure. And, you know, everyone loved it, thought it was great. What a great example. And it's humorous, and these cute boys are lip-syncing and doing a lot of stuff. But when you break it down, it's like— what what are you telling these girls? Like, if you don't dress and act the way I want you to, I'm not attracted to you. And the way that I need you to be is to cover yourself. I think it's even more difficult than that for girls to figure out because you don't want to be too chaste or guys won't like you, but you don't want to come off as a harlot. You got to find that middle ground. And it's very confusing, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing too is these girls that listen to these videos and watch these, these are teenagers. They typically don't have the emotional maturity to understand that this is really screwing them up listening to this stuff. They don't analyze. It just goes in. Everything that damaged me when I was younger, I didn't know it was damaging me. Right. You don't see it during it, so you just keep letting it in. And then when you're older and you're completely screwed up and you're in therapy, that's when you're like, oh, yeah, this stuff was fed to me little bits at a time throughout my entire life, and that's why I'm screwed up now. Yeah, for sure. So, Linda, in your book, you know, females seem to bear the burden of keeping themselves looking modest so as to not create a temptation or stumbling block for men. But it's funny because you also point out in the Bible, that's not really what a stumbling block is referring to. It's not blaming women at all. Yeah, that particular series of verses that I bring up, when I read it, you know, as an adult, you know, actually doing research for the book because I was thinking about how often I was called a stumbling block, you know, this thing over which men and boys would trip. So I looked it up and I was reading some of the verses, particularly those verses that were cited a lot as examples of where this idea of stumbling block came from. And it just was so clear that that is not <laughs> what was being talked about. Right. You know, so then I went back and I said, okay, wait a minute, what, what is going on in terms of stumbling block? And I actually started reaching out to theologians. I had a list of like maybe eight, nine theologians that I was in touch with because I certainly don't consider myself a theologian. But I said, you know, when I look at the Bible, what I actually see with this term stumbling block is that most often the definition is somebody who's going to prevent somebody from being a Christian, usually by being judgmental, Mm. right? Like judging others is the primary way that we see this term stumbling block being used. Yeah, exactly. You know, if we were to actually look at the text, the person who would probably be a stumbling block, if we were to analyze that conversation, you know, would be the person who would be shaming and judging. Because in my experience, if a stumbling block is things that might stand in the way of somebody continuing on their path in the church— The biggest issue for me that I see is judgmentalism and is shaming. Absolutely. People feeling that they can't bring their whole selves, that they can't be themselves. Yeah. I don't think anyone ever left the church because people were dressing too sexy. (laughs) That's not it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that quote is about plucking your eye out if you're looking at somebody lustfully. Yeah. The perpetrator's a problem. There's one section of the Bible where the term stumbling block is used in reference to sexuality, and it is that one. It's if you are looking at a woman with lust for her in your heart, it is better, you know, for you to pluck your eye out than to go to hell. So in that reference, the stumbling block is the eye. Mm-hmm. The stumbling block is not the woman. It is your own lust. Right. So it's the only verse that explicitly talks about sexuality in reference to stumbling block is not the verse that was most often cited when people talked about stumbling block and talked about women as stumbling blocks. The verse that was most often cited was actually a series of verses around food. So the whole thing was, You know, you might have eating restrictions that are religious eating restrictions, but I'm telling you, don't let things like that be a stumbling block to other Christians. If you go to someone's house and they're serving something that you are not trying to eat for religious reasons, just eat it. Like, just be a good 
guest, <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't need to like make a big show and shame them, right? Yeah. You know, don't be a stumbling block to them. Interesting. And so, you know, what was said to me is, you know, listen, similarly, you are free to eat anything, but be thoughtful about how it's affecting other people. It can be correlated to, you're free to wear anything, ladies. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. can wear whatever you want, but like be a good person and protect the boys. Think about us when you're getting dressed, right? Jeez. Like who started that bullshit? Exactly. Who took it from food to breasts? It's a great question. I don't know who the first one was, but it boy, did it pick up. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Like let's go back to food shaming. I mean, that's healthier. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when you look at the verses, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Or cover your shoulders, whichever one. <laughs> if you want to cover your shoulders, great. It's a damn shoulder. Yeah, but you don't need to be like walking around being like, I noticed that your shoulders aren't covered and Uh I noticed that your shoulders aren't covered and I wanted to point out that my shoulders are covered and therefore all of our shoulders should be covered because none of us should be sitting here without any of our shoulders covered. Uh huh. That is such a Mormon thing, by the way. I don't know how much you know about uh, Mormonism, Linda, but when you go through the temple for the first time, you get these undergarments that you have to wear under your clothes forever, all the time, and they cover your shoulders. So... It makes it easy to judge people. If you see a fellow Mormon and you see their shoulders, you know, oh, they're not temple worthy. They're automatically not as worthy as I am because they don't wear the garment. It's such an outward way to judge people, and it's gross. Mm, yeah. Was there a way, like within the purity culture, some sort of standard that, you know, these people dress this way, the lesser people dress that way? Sure, because there were all different manifestations of what the rules were. I I think that's what was so hard is that the rules were different for everyone. Mm. So you were constantly comparing yourself to other people to try to figure out whether you were pure or not, right? Mm -hmm. Or whether they are pure or not. Right, right. So for some folks, you would never wear a skirt above the knee, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you might only even wear ankle length skirts and dresses. Whereas for others, you know, above the knee was fine, you know, just as long as it wasn't too far above. But what does that mean? Yeah. (laughs) Is there a line where you lose your purity? If so, where is that line? You know, when when is someone impure? And why does someone else get to decide that? Well, and that's a good point. You know, we were talking earlier about modest is hottest. And one of the things that I really hate about that terminology is that we're still talking about what really should matter to you as a girl or a woman is whether or not you're hot. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. either way, we're talking about your value at the end of the day is determined by the extent to which you are attractive to men and boys. Exactly. Within secular society, it might be, you know, you being attractive to them because you're so Mm sexy, whereas in evangelical and Mormon community, It's you have to be attractive to them because you're so sexless. Right. But either way, you are telling them what matters about you is whether or not they like you. Exactly. And particularly the purity movement targeting adolescents is really interesting because, you know, there's all this research about— girls who are young, who have these ideas about themselves and see themselves through their own eyes, right? I am fast. I run fast, right? (laughs) I am good at math. Mm -hmm. And then something starts to change as they hit adolescence because they suddenly start to realize that they are being viewed by everyone else and they don't know how to talk about themselves anymore because they can't oftentimes see themselves through their own eyes. They're trying to see themselves through their own eyes and compare it to how they perceive themselves being seen by their teachers, by the boys, by their friends, by their parents, by everyone else. Mm -hmm. Who do you want me to be? You know? Right. Yeah. And so that transition that's happening because of our society, you know, issues with patriarchy happens at the same time as we are push, 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 pushing all this messaging on young women and saying, okay, you know, as you are assessing your acceptability in society, here's a a really robust program (laughs) that tells you how you will be acceptable. Of course, it's got a lot of gray areas, like where that line is, where you lose your purity if your skirt length and Mm -hmm. how far is too far and, you know, whether talking to a boy is fine or flirtation 
and all kinds of ambiguity. So you'll have to do a lot of work to figure it out. But the point is, we are not going to counter this idea that other people's opinions of you are what matters. We're going to accept that idea as the baseline. And we're going to tell you how to be acceptable to others. And good luck. Right. And in your book, you mentioned that in general, purity culture excuses male sexuality and amplifies female sexuality. What do you mean? So it's interesting because when we talk about guilt versus shame, I think it's a great way to talk about the gendered approaches to sexuality. For folks who are big Brene Brown followers, this will be no new news, but guilt is this feeling, I did something bad. And if you're guilting someone, you're talking about you did this. Well, you lied, right? For example, Mm -hmm. shame is this feeling, I am something bad, or people will think that I am something bad. Mm. So you are a liar. Right. You're not like a person who lied. You are a liar. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when we look at how sex and sexuality are talked about in the purity movement, we see that with men and boys, it's talked about using a guilt-based frame. You shouldn't do these things. However, when it's talked about um, among women and girls, it's talked about using a shame-based frame. You shouldn't be this thing, right? Mm, Yeah. So the men and boys have the agency to mess up and to continue to still be good, Hmm. whereas girls and women are fundamentally changed, right? They're changed from pure to impure. They're fundamentally changed from a virgin to a whore. Mm -hmm. They're fundamentally changed from, you know, Mary to the Jezebel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I could go on and on with these binaries because the point is that is how it is taught to girls and women as a binary. You all um, have talked about this in the past, but object lessons are a good example of this. I've only ever heard one object lesson used across genders. For the most part, they're only used with girls and women. There are so many examples of them. Like, let's use a hamburger, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you are, young woman, this hamburger that has never been, you know, touched by anyone. But now it's been passed around a table and everyone's taken bites and it's got slobber on it. And who wants that last bite, right? Right. You are changed, right? <sighs> yeah. Yep. That was never taught to me for some reason, but you got those teachings, Shelley. Oh, for sure. The chewed gum uh, analogy? The, the chewed gum. The more recent's been the cracked iPhone case. The licked cupcake, the apple with a bite missing out of it. But again, that's never taught to the boys. I posted about this a while ago, and none of the boys, none of the Mormon boys said, oh, yeah, I, I was taught not to be a licked cupcake. No, they don't, because boys don't have to be virgins. Nobody cares. Yeah, yeah. You know, all they need to do is repent, and they're good to go. But a girl who's not a virgin, she can't get that back. She'll never be a virgin again, even though it's the same with boys, but they don't care. Yeah, and it's yeah. the girl's responsibility to, to remain clean and pure. No girl is given pressure to find a boy who's a virgin. They're just given pressure to find a boy who can take them to the temple, which all that means is that he's repented, right? Mm. But boys are given the task of finding a girl who's worthy of him and has saved herself for him. Mm. It's such a freaking double standard. It's disgusting. Yeah. Do you think, Linda, in the purity culture, it's by and large, the girl's job to put on the brakes in adolescent dating situations? Absolutely. So the teaching is that boys and men are fundamentally sexual, all of them. (laughs) They're all like these ferocious beasts who can't wait to have sex. And girls and women are not very sexual. Of course, all of this is with, you know, heteronormative assumptions layered over it, right? Yeah, sure. Therefore, it is the girls and the women's job to maintain the purity for not only themselves, but for everyone. In fact, a lot of the shaming within the community is not, you know, just about like you are impure. You're not just trying to maintain your own purity, mm-hmm. but it's about if you lead him astray, right? Yeah. Mm. If you are a stumbling block for his journey, you know, so on and so forth. So it's a lot of language about the real threat that you pose to other people and particularly to men and boys because it's your responsibility to make sure that they don't have sexual thoughts, that they don't have sexual feelings, that they don't take sexual actions, that they don't take too many sexual actions. And that is some really muddy ground, particularly when we're talking about consent 
And oftentimes this logic of it's the girl's job or the woman's job to make sure that there is no sexual thought, feeling, or action taken comes back to uh, be resurfaced in rape cases, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or abuse cases or any number of things where it's mere happening— Right? right, means that she did something wrong because the logic of the community is that it's her job to make sure that this doesn't happen. Yeah. So if it does, what does she do? Right. right? Was she wearing the wrong thing? Did she not lock the bathroom door? Yeah. Why would yeah. you not lock the door? Why would you wear those shorts? Why would you fall asleep on the couch with a guy over? Right. Yeah. All of that. Mm-hmm. Forever, it was a problem at BYU because there's the honor code. And when you sign the honor code, you say you're not going to have sex. And so what will happen is there will be a date rape situation. Mm-hmm. And the girl is afraid to go to the police to report this because they they will then get questioned by the honor code saying, well, why was he in your dorm that late? Right. So then she can get kicked out of school because he raped her. Yeah. And so girls typically just say nothing because they don't want to lose their education. If I say anything what this boy did, then I'm going to get questioned and I'm going to get kicked out of school because somehow it's her fault because she let him stay past visiting time or she decided she wanted to try alcohol for the first time. And, you know, if you hadn't have done that, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I have to throw this in there because it's so freaking ridiculous. It makes me laugh now, but it's also makes me furious. There was like this five-year span in early 2000s, where my dad somehow had it in his head. I don't know where he heard it, who made this up, but it's ridiculous, that girls in Salt Lake City were looking through the newspaper to find where the missionary farewells were going to be. So when a 19-year-old boy is going to go on his mission, they have a farewell for him. He speaks in church, and then, you know, at his home, there'll be like a gathering of food and stuff, everyone, you know, wanting to say goodbye. So the girls would go through the paper, find these farewells of these boys, find the boy, and then talk the boy into having sex with them so he would no longer be allowed to go on his mission. (laughs) Why? In his mind, girls are trying to keep these amazing young men from going on missions. Like, are you serious? Who would do that? But he literally thought that, and he had to have heard it from somewhere. So somehow this was this weird lie going around that makes it look like (laughs) girls are whores and they're trying to steal the virtue from boys. So basically, some boys were found out to have sex. They couldn't go on their mission and they had to pin it on a girl. Yeah, right? I didn't want to, but she blah, blah, blah. She came and found me. She looked in the newspaper. Yeah. She looked in the newspaper. <laughs> she looked in the newspaper. <laughs> There's this band of roving, like... Harlots. Harlots that are out to destroy the virtue of the young men. Harlots who love the news. <laughs> I feel like there's something really cinematic about that. I'm like imagining them all like in a coffee shop with like these huge newspapers that they all oh have, right? And they're in a sort of a circle with these giant newspapers circling, you know? I'm thinking right. screenplay right now in my head, and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then they lower the paper, and they're wearing sunglasses, and you just see their sunglasses. I like it. And they tip their sunglasses down and look at each other and say, yep. let's go. Let's go. Yep, and I'm pretty sure their shoulders are exposed. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so, Shelly, this sounds like a good time for a break. I agree. We'll be right back. We are supported by apostate coffee, a damn good cup of joe. I would like to bear my testimony that you will love this blend with every fiber of your being. Uh, you mean bean? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the Les Bean medium dark variety roasted in small batches to ensure freshness, zero bitterness, and balanced acidity. With the sacred, not secret combo of caramel and cocoa, very fancy. Mm-hmm. This coffee will nourish and strengthen your body. Nice. So stop drinking subpar coffee. Give the Lesbian Blend a try today at apostatecoffee.com. That's apostatecoffee.com. And we're back. Hello. Linda, you talk about how the church views men as animals with no agency and that boys are raised to believe that they can't control their own sexuality. Right. So what happens then? It's interesting because I I get a lot of calls from men uh, who have read my book. And I've actually learned a lot about men since the book has come out. Before the book came out, I was trying to understand it. It was very complex. It was hard for me to really understand what was happening in terms of their psychological development. But now I have a much better sense. So they're being told that they are naturally monstrous and that all sin is equal. And one comparison that's often made 
is the Bathsheba comparison, right? So Mm. David, even looking at Bathsheba with lust, is the same level of sin as his later raping her and killing her husband. Wow. Why didn't he have to pluck an eye out is what I want to (laughs) know. Right? You know? For God's sake, (laughs) lose the eye. (laughs) So that comparison, the way it affected some men that I've talked with is they were filled with such a fear of their monstrousness that every time they even noticed women's bodies, they were filled with the shame that they were monsters, that they were bad, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh my God, I noticed that she has a body again. What is wrong with me? I'm a horrible monster, Yeah, yeah. Whereas other people used that same logic to justify doing truly monstrous things Mm. because there's this real ambiguity about what is monstrous, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what is a violation, right, and what isn't. And then there are other ways that they've been affected as well that I think are really interesting, like um, whether or not women are pure that haunt them for a long time into the course of the rest of their lives, you know, into their marriages, (laughs) you know. Wow. Oh, yeah. So whereas women are so focused on their own purity, you know, men are um, in a different way focused on their monstrousness and are also focused on women's purity oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Everybody is different, right? But it's such a complex rubric of messaging and we're getting these societal messages and then we're getting these theological justifications for the societal messages that take them so much deeper and so much further. And it plays out in deeply, deeply damaging ways. Yeah. I mean, nobody is immune to shame, it seems like, within the purity movement. You say that women are taught their bodies are evil, men are taught their minds are, which reminded me of a story of someone you interviewed, David, who is sent to Sex Addicts Anonymous when he clearly isn't a sex addict. So what's his story? Do you mind telling us about that? Sure, I'd be happy to share it. And by the way, that is something I've heard many, many times from men and from women where they're going to sex addict um, anonymous groups and where they're going to therapists for sex addiction when, you know, they've never even kissed somebody before. They've never had any physical contact with somebody. It's just that they think about it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. It's insane. So again, this story is very common, but Dave, who you cited specifically, um, his name is actually David Dickerson, and he actually has a book. So if people want to hear a little bit about that, that might be interesting um, to look at his book too. Cool. He tells this story about how he was walking around feeling monstrous because he noticed women's bodies (laughs) and he was walking around, you know, constantly aware of it and constantly aware of like, I really hope I don't see a woman's body and I really hope I see a woman's body and I hope I don't and I hope I do, right? This sort of conflicted, but it was a constant. It was it was truly obsessive. And we're talking about clothed bodies, yes. right? Like walking around the library and walking around the grocery <laughs> okay. store, right? Oh, the sexy librarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, the, the way in which this repression creates obsession, right? The way in which this culture trying to be sexless creates a kind of constant thought of sex on your mind, right? You're constantly thinking about sex because you're constantly thinking about, I hope I don't think about sex. Wow. And you're constantly thinking about, you know, a woman's body because you're constantly thinking, I hope I don't see a woman's body, but I hope I do see a woman's body, but I hope I don't see a woman's body. Anyway, he ended up going to a Sex Addicts Anonymous group and, you know, they went around the circle and shared their stories and he shared his and everyone just stared at him like, huh? What's happening? <laughs> what are you doing here, dude? Where's the hidden camera? This is funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> did someone advise him to attend this group or did he do it on his own? I'm trying to remember. I think that he was advised to go attend Why? by one therapist. Oh, my gosh. And then he went to <laughs> another therapist afterward who said, your assignment is to go home buy some pornography and masturbate. (laughs) And he said, I went home, I bought some pornography, I masturbated and I was cured of my sex addiction. (laughs) He was just, he was just pent up. He was repressed. In Mormonism, if the boys masturbate and they go to the bishop and say, I masturbated, it's this instant like, oh my gosh, he's addicted to porn. He's addicted to sex. He's going to become gay. I mean, that was the teaching for the longest time is that if you masturbate, it makes you gay. If that were the case, I think most people would be gay at this point. Unfortunately, they're not. Um, but just taking this thing that's a normal, natural thing and making it to be like, oh my gosh, you need rehabilitation. 
this is the sort of larger story, right? When you take something that is, for many of us, a human experience, right? And you try to deny it. And I think for a lot of us, you know, it's not just sexuality. For me, certainly, you know, purity culture was very tied to gender expectations as well. So it wasn't just as a woman, you have to be sexually pure, but as a woman, you can never be angry. You can never be sad. You can never yell, raise your voice, you know? You get no emotion. Yeah. So people end up trying to deny their human experience in so many ways to try to, again, be what others want them to be. That's so Mormon too, isn't it, Shelley? It is. I wanted to insert that real quick. So you have these kids who are trying to maintain this purity, and I'm talking about the boys just right now. They're trying to maintain this purity so they can go on a mission. That's the big push for Mormons is these boys need to serve missions. You can't serve a mission if you have a problem with masturbation, a problem being you masturbated, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's got to be an embarrassing thing to go to tell a grown man, oh, I masturbated, I need to repent. But there'd be these boys who tell the bishop of their problem, and then they have to go every week and talk to the bishop, but the bishop asks them, did you masturbate? Were you able to avoid it? Mm. So their entire focus is how to make you stop being normal. Mm -hmm. And so there's kids, they end up just lying because they don't want to not go on a mission because then they'll be shamed by everyone around them. If you don't serve a mission when you're a boy in the Mormon church, you're shamed. You're shamed and guilty because you're a sinner. You didn't go. There's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. So they just have to end up lying. And then you get in a pattern of, of lying, and then that makes you feel like an even worse person. So then when you do masturbate again, you feel horrible because, oh, now I got to lie about this. I must be an addict. There's something seriously wrong with me. Mm. Right. It's tragic. Yeah, it's a shame cycle for sure. Um, Linda, I just want to hear that story of your being in college and needing to have an x-ray taken. And the nurse asks you if you could be pregnant. Can you tell that story for us? Yeah. So uh, I don't remember why I was in the school nurse and I had to have an x-ray of some kind. And you know how they ask you whether or not there's a a chance you could be pregnant before you have an x-ray, right? And I uh, started to get really nervous when she asked the question and I really hesitated And she said, okay, uh, you know, listen, we can give you a pregnancy test, you know? And I was like, oh, I mean, maybe we should just to be sure, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, she's like, listen, it's only $5. Let's just give you a pregnancy test. We'll just make sure. I was like, great, 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 great. And she came back and she said, your pregnancy test is clear. But before we do the x-ray, I also just wanted to say that we should put you on birth control pills. And I said, oh, I'm actually already on birth control pills. And she said, really? Well, then why <laughs> why did you feel you needed to take the pregnancy God. test? And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm suddenly seeing myself from the outside. And this thing that I do, mm-hmm. which is feel that I might be pregnant, though I am on birth control, and here's the kicker, had never had sex. <laughs> oh, my God. Linda. I don't mean to laugh at you. <laughs> right. Wow. Here I see it in her eyes, and she doesn't even know that I've never had sex. <laughs> right. Yeah. All she knows is that I am on birth control and am also taking a pregnancy test. Yeah. Oh and so I say, oh, you, you know, my period was late. I, I just, I wanted to be sure which was, you know, technically true because I had stopped getting my periods while on birth control for a very long time, right? Um, Which happens. Mm -hmm. And I just walked away from that being like, oh my God, like, is it weird for me to be scared that I might be pregnant when I'm on birth control even? Because if that's weird, then my constant terror, even though I am not even having sex and have never had sex. Yeah you know, truly something must be wrong with me. <laughs> wow. There's some deep issues there. And I was taking lots of pregnancy tests. I was taking pregnancy tests, you know, whenever my boyfriend and I would get close to having sex. Wow. Because it just felt like the threat oh of, my gosh. of something happening and of my being exposed as somebody who wasn't a virgin was so terrifying yeah. that I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it until I saw that negative sign. Yeah, It must have taken over your entire life, like everything you thought about. I left evangelicalism when I was um, 20, 21, 
And when I left, I thought that I would now suddenly be free of all this sexual shame and fear and anxiety that I had had my whole life. And what I found was that actually what happened at that point when I started to, you know, for the next five, six years, explore the possibility of having sex before marriage um, was I started to actually have intensified sexual shame, fear, and anxiety. Mm. And in fact, it was manifesting in PTSD-like ways through these nightmares and these, you know, this panic, the paranoia, you know, around pregnancy tests and other things. And it was because I, I now know I, you know, had really um, internalized this message that sexuality was shameful and a shame-based experience in reaction to my own sexuality. So now here I was actually for the first time in my life exploring sexuality in a way that was dangerous for me, according to my old worldview, though my new worldview felt differently. Mm -hmm. And it was triggering all of this internalized shame. Wow. So I felt like I was completely broken because now I had left evangelicalism. I was outside that world. I was in a secular world. Um, I dropped out of Bible college and went to Sarah Lawrence College, which is one of the most liberal colleges in the country, particularly sexually liberal. And, you know, I was surrounded by people who had no understanding for what I was experiencing and who thought I was severely damaged and broken. And and they were right, but they weren't helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, my journey to healing started out when I started to do this very brave thing, which is call up my girlfriends from back home in my church youth group and tell them what I was experiencing because I was hoping that maybe there would be some glimmer of recognition. Sure. And there was. Mm -hmm. There was an incredible level of recognition that astounded me. And so, you know, I started to share my story with more people, and then they started to whisper their own stories back to me. And I started to realize how many of the girls I grew up with were experiencing not only the shame, but these PTSD-like experiences, whether they were married, whether they were still evangelical, you know? Yes. And so that became the beginning of, in my mid-20s, moving back to my hometown, doing a year of interviews with all the girls I grew up with in my youth group. And then that was the catalyst for 12 more years of interviews that ultimately, you know, went into the creation of this book that is my story and my experience, but also my journey of unraveling. Mm. What is going on? What is this movement? Who are these people who created it? You know, how many of us are being affected in this way? Yeah. It was like a snowball, right? And I started to understand more and more and more. And in the process, you know, it was a very healing experience for me because I was also building a community of people who understood. And through this kind of sacred story exchange, we all found a level of healing and um, connection to self through connection to other. That's great. Right now, as our listeners are listening, they're saying, Oh my God, yes, I'm buying her book. I need to know this because everything you just (laughs) said about not understanding why you were having PTSD and thinking you're the only one, well, maybe I'll ask some other people. This is what these ex-Mormons or even current Mormons go through all the time. They don't know why their sex life is so screwed up. You know, I always thought that the reason I um, had a hard time in my marriage was because I had had premarital sex. And so that is God then shaming me and making it so I don't want to have sex. Well, it turns out I was gay the whole time, you know, Mm. but of course you have to go back to this is your fault because you weren't pure. And the PTSD, is real. The first time Mary and I had any kind of an intimate encounter, and by this time I had left the church. I thought it was all crap. I didn't care. I wasn't feeling guilty at all. I was like, I am so done. But after our first intimate experience, I had a full-on panic attack, crying, shaking, feeling guilt, feeling shame. And it was like, whoa, what is happening? And so really being able to tell the stories like you have, Linda, telling your story, and suddenly people are going, well, I I think I want to tell mine too. And you're getting those stories back. And that's what we did. People started writing into our podcast. And so we're going, oh, wow. Well, so we'll read those stories on the podcast. And it does. It creates this huge tight community of people who aren't afraid to talk about it. That's right. So that people don't feel like they're alone anymore. And it's wonderful. Linda, thank you for doing that on your end. That's amazing. Yeah. But to be fair, I am a lousy lover, so. Oh, God. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nothing could be farther from the truth. <laughs> and how would I know anyway? Yeah. It was my first lesbian experience. You could very well be lousy, <laughs> Mary. I don't nothing know. Nothing <laughs> to compare it to. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, Linda, you do such a wonderful job of telling so many different stories from these people you've encountered over the course of these interviews. Uh, I love that part of the book that it's not just your point of view. It's so many different points of view with similar experiences. It's it's really, really a good read. Um, one more question for you. What do you want to be the overall result of having this book out in the world? What would you like to see happen? You know, my my vision is we're not going to create any change by going up to, you know, the religious leadership and being like, please, sir, may you stop shaming us? <laughs> <laughs> Never going to happen. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is we can tell the truth about our lives to one another, and we can do that in a way that creates a groundswell of, of story energy that can actually trickle up and actually start to change society and change religion. And, you know, the book has always been, for me, the beginning. I actually started a nonprofit. So the book title is Pure, uh, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. And the organization title is Break Free Together. So it's sort of a response to the how I broke free. Because I don't think that I broke free alone. Mm. You know, and I actually think that that is something that needs to be underscored because I don't think that very many of us break free alone. You know, it is through the process of coming together. So what we do through Break Free Together is we create these story exchanges, a variety of different kinds of story exchanges, so that people can come into this space together. And one of the things that we're doing that some of your listeners might be interested in is this year we're taking this story exchange dinner model that we've been doing, and we've been doing it um, mostly in partnership with churches where we'll bring together a bunch of tables of different people and have a large experience with lots of small experiences. So, you know, I'll lead a large group and then people will break into these small groups just so that people know um, it is not a religious or spiritual thing. <laughs> yeah, You know, we call it sacred but secular, right? Like there's something sacred going on but mm. we don't even need to use the language of spirituality gotcha. because I know that that can be very challenging for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing this year is we're saying, can we actually democratize that model? And can we actually turn this into something that people can do in their homes? Mm. So, you know, I can lead a dinner in my house for four of my friends and my neighbor can lead a dinner in their house, you know, for four of their friends. And, you know, we have kitchen tables and living room couches and dorm room floors around the country filled with people, right? Yeah. So we're going to be piloting that this year and we're developing the training right now because we really want to make sure that people are equipped to be able to hold the complexity of these conversations um, which is so important. So we're translating a lot of what we've been doing in these multi-table experiences uh, right now. And if people want to sign up to pilot, you know, it'll all be free. <laughs> um, we're going to be testing it um, this year and we'll do training in the summer. And then in September, you know, the idea is that we'll have dinners all around the country. <laughs> That's really great. I love that. I love this idea. I yeah. love it. How can uh how can I and our listeners uh, get more information on that? Yeah, it's on my website. So you can go to lindakklein.com, K-A-Y is my middle name, or you can actually go directly to the nonprofit site, which is breakfreetogether.org. And either way, there's a, a pop-up on the first page where you can sign up for that DIY dinner. And then on the Break Free Together page, there's lots more information about uh, what we're up to. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Our guest has been Linda K. Klein, author. Go pick up her book, Pure. It's fascinating. It's such a good read. Yes. Thank you so much, Linda, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Linda. Whew, that was an amazing interview. Yeah, I kind of love her. And I think uh, listeners really, I'm not just saying that to push her stuff on you, but listen to her either audiobook or read her book because it's like hand in hand with Mormonism. We are not the only ones who got totally fucked up. Yeah. And she's doing some amazing projects. I know she just talked about that. She's doing good things. We need to support this. We need to help each other heal. Yeah, she needs support just like we all do. Speaking of that, we are about to take a break and get to some Patreon stuff. I want to just mention something really quickly. We had a review on Apple iTunes 
that somebody felt a little triggery when we talk about Patreon um, made her feel like passing the plate in church, and that is a trigger for her. Mm-hmm. So while we can't avoid talking about Patreon because we need that support, uh, Patreon really helps us out with a podcast. We've got people that we pay to help us produce this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to do several Pride events this year. So podcasting isn't free, and we do need the support, and we are going to ask for the support. However, what we can try to do is wait until after the last commercial break and talk about all our Patreon stuff there. So if hearing us, um, I guess, ask for money during the podcast uh, makes you sugar, okay, that's cool. Everyone has their own triggers. We will throw all the Patreon stuff to you after the last break, just so it's, um, you know, it's still there, but you know when it's coming. How about that? We want to be sensitive. Everybody has different triggers. Mm-hmm. So Shelly has been trying to find a church, and we actually watched like a live stream of a church service recently, and you didn't even get through 30 seconds of the first hymn, and you, and you were like, uh-uh, I can't, I can't, turn it off, turn it, it off. It was, well... <laughs> you were triggering. Oh, well, which one? We tried two different ones. The first one was just totally like hymns yeah. and old people. Nothing against old people, but it was like... <laughs> It just was like church. It was it was church to me, and I, yeah, and well, yeah, I don't church. want church. I want like community that's not church with hymns and I know and funeral procession and I don't know. Anyway, but that's just funeral that's procession. my trigger. <laughs> wow, you're really selling Mormonism if that's what it feels like. <laughs> oh, it feels like God, I'm well, at a funeral, uh, Mary. I'm still going to take you. You know what I want to do? Okay, here we go. I'm just going to announce this. Uh-oh, what? Uh, Is this we, against my will? Uh, yeah, and you know what? It's probably not going to work. So never mind. I was going to say our, to our Utah listeners to find a super Mormon church service Mm-mm. for me to take Mary to. But when we're out there, Sunday mornings are actually uh, the Pride Festival. So Mary, you are off the hook. Whew, yeah, I'm Can't not consenting both. that to that. I will watch some nutty video and mm-hmm. make commentary, but not I'm the not— same. Uh, yeah, and I have no interest in that. But thanks. Mm. Thanks for trying. I try. <laughs> Just get somebody like new name Noah to sneak in a camera and I can watch the taped version. Oh, I could find a video for you. But to be there and feel the hypocrisy <laughs> and feel the fake spirit and watch the tears of the people crying about finding their lost keys. I mean, you just you can't. It just doesn't. Translate okay. as well when you're watching it on your computer screen. All right. Well, you know, right now I'm starting to trigger, so why don't we go ahead oh, sorry, and okay. take that break? Yep. And uh, when we come back, we'll get to Patreon. You got it. All right. Be right back. We are supported by new dating app. Hey, listeners, raise your hand if you think dating after Mormonism is difficult. Probably 95% of our listeners are raising their hands right now. <laughs> you know, it's hard meeting someone and having to explain your whole wacky Mormon upbringing. Oh, uh, we went through this. And since your faith transition, you've probably been kicked out of the singles ward. So now what? Oh, that is challenging. Mm-hmm. Check out New. It's an ex-Mormon dating app available for download on both Android and iPhone. Are you ready to find post-Mormon love with someone who understands your story? I know I am. <laughs> oh, hey. wait, wait, too late. <laughs> <laughs> Visit newdating.app and learn more. That's newdating.app. We're back. Patreon time. It's time for some patrons. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, should we get to the names? Do we get exactly five, shall Let we? Let me count. One, two, three, <laughs> four, five. It's exactly five. For some reason, you just love that number five. You really I do. just think it's a tender mercy. All this coincidence <laughs> of five every time makes me think the church is true. Does that so... make you think there is a God then? Or isn't it? 100%. A God? Okay. I don't know. All right. If there is a God and he cares about the number five, then he's really, really petty. <laughs> All right. Name number one is Dietrich B. What kind of name is Dietrich? I like it. Dietrich. That's neat. Does he need a last name? Dietrich Beethoven. Sure. Let's keep it all German. I like it. That's right. And he's a famous composer. So there you go. Yeah. So thanks for your um, lovely music, Dietrich. We appreciate it. I also heard um, that you were an asshole back when you were composing music. (laughs) Wow. And tone deaf. Isn't that true? I thought Beethoven was an asshole. Not maybe tone deaf, but he was actually deaf. So, you know, that is impressive that he could be such an accomplished composer when he was deaf. Who, Dietrich? Beethoven. (laughs) Are we getting it mixed up now? (laughs) Dietrich, we want to see your wig. And what's that wig called that goes in front of your crotch hair? Oh, God, it's a, um... <laughs> what is that called? Oh, my God, it's a... <laughs> shit. fact check. What no, is no, no. that thing? Little Factory Tim, you know what this is. You're the one who told me what it is. <laughs> Codpiece. No. No, that's not Cod it. Codpiece? Cod's a fish. 
You're thinking of fish stick. <laughs> That's insulting to men. Don't pass call it a the fish tartar stick. sauce. Okay. <laughs> what is that thing? I can't think of it. It's a funny, it's funny me word. Crazy. It is a funny word. Um, Dietrich, that was the longest introduction of your name ever. <laughs> Next, the letter R. Ikitzel, last initial, W. R. Ikitzel? This is a change. So we have a first initial. What's the R stand for? Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin Ikitzel W. (laughs) That's a good name. That's your father's favorite swear word, I think, is Rumpelstiltskin. 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 That's true. So we're calling this person a swear word. Yep. Sorry. Take that. (laughs) Rumpelstiltskin Ikitzel W. (laughs) Kind of a tongue twister. Sure is. What else we got? All right. Next, we have Krista Van Z. Van Z. <laughs> yeah, so my grandpa's name was Van. It's actually named J. Van Johnson. So J, just the letter J, and then Van. He was the coolest mf ever. Hmm. He never wore ties. He wore turquoise bolo ties. Wow. And he had horses, and he was a cowboy, and he put those little silver... What are those little things that you Stirrups? put? Nope. No. At the end of your, like a, a dress shirt where the collar oh. is and you attach those silver triangle collar things. Oh, right. What are those called? I don't know. It's like cufflinks for collars. I don't know what those things are. They're collar triangles. Okay. That's what I decided. Still don't know what the name of the thing is that you put over your private. Uh, why am I blanking on that wig? I don't know. You think because we say it all the time. We need Fanny fact check on the case, I think. <laughs> we do. <laughs> okay. Next patron is... Chris with a K. Hi, Chris with a K. Thanks so much. Chris with a K needs a K last name too. Chris Kringle. Oh, Chris Kringle. Because it's so giving what Chris is doing. All right. Next and lastly, Mona A. Mona A. Mona, Mona. Mona, Mona. Mm-hmm. Is she come now? Say right. Mona, Mona. Okay. Mm-hmm. Get your tickets now, everybody. Shelly live in concert. <laughs> so this is where your Patreon money goes is to pay for my singing lessons. <laughs> Watch, we're going to have like 60 people sign up overnight. Like, oh my God, help her. <laughs> Make her stop singing. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, if we get 10 new patrons within five minutes after this is released, I will never sing again. <laughs> <laughs> That'll really tell you something right there. <laughs> what are they trying to tell me? <laughs> uh, I'll cry a little bit, but then I'll just be happy that we have new patrons. So whatever. It's a wash. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> all right. Is that all of them? That's five, baby. All right. Thanks to everyone for your support. Seriously, it's so appreciated. Couldn't do this without you. Yeah. As a reminder, if you would like to support us on Patreon, we hope you do, please visit patreon.com slash Lesbian to sign up. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to also thank Dan from Extension Audio. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, we appreciate it. And to the rest of you, remember, steer clear of cults, because they are no joke. No joke at all. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>